0: Friends, please join me now in a word of prayer to the Lord. He is always faithful to come by his spirit and minister his word to us. But let's ask him now for his help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are in need of you every hour as we just sung. And we are perhaps at most in need of you in this hour. As we come to a service like this, as we come to your word, as we open the Bible we know that we are desperate for your help. We are desperate for you to show up by your spirit and do something awesome and eternally good for us. We pray, Lord, that you would use me as the preacher of your word this morning, and we pray for all of us, that you would fill us with your spirit so that we might hear your word, that we might see it as true and awesome and good, and that we might be affected in our hearts and in our minds. We pray that our identity in Christ and our identity as your children. We pray that those truths would comfort us this morning. We pray that they would encourage us this morning and that they would give us motivation even to obey the things that you have told us are good for us. Come and do these things in our hearts and our minds. Use your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, in light of the hymn that we just sang, I need thee every hour, it's never bad for us to be reminded. This is one of the great things about corporate worship happening once a week is that we have at least one reminder pointedly every week of our constant need for God. We have a reminder every week of our constant need for Jesus in particular, for his work in our place his righteousness that is counted to us by faith, his atoning death, the death he died to the law so that we might be free. We need to be reminded of that and our constant need of it every week. We need to be reminded of our need for the Holy Spirit, that apart from the Spirit, nothing good is ever done. Apart from the Spirit, we learn nothing of eternal significance, and we certainly, apart from God's Spirit, would never obey the Lord. We would never honor Him in any way. We would never, apart from the Holy Spirit, make it to heaven. We need to be reminded of our need for Him. And it's good for us once a week to be reminded of our need for the Word of God. We live by the Word of God. We don't live by bread alone, right? but by every word that is spoken by the Lord. And we need to be reminded once a week, at least, of our need for the church. As we've considered so often, even in this letter of First John, we desperately need each other. You might not feel that way. You might not feel that way today. You might be thinking, yeah, I'm just here, and that's about all I can say. We need this. We need one another. And the way the Lord works through these ordinary means that he's given us is that even when we don't perceive the benefit that's coming, it's coming. The Lord sees to that by his spirit. And so we rejoice in those realities that the Lord has really given his children. Even in this fallen world, he has given us everything that we need in order to endure in the faith and in order to honor him. So we find ourselves today As we have gathered as God's people, we now are about to sit under God's word. What better place to be than that? We find ourselves back in the letter of 1 John today. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles while I'm just giving a a brief word of context. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, is where we will be beginning our time together today. The book of 1 John is near the very back of the Bible. The only books after it are Revelation, Jude, Third John, Second John. So if you go to the back cover and start working backwards into the Bible, you will find it. We'll try to get the words up here on the screen uh, as we look at the text together today. But just by way of reminder, you guys have heard these things a number of times, but it's never bad to do this. Remember the context of this letter. Remember the situation. John the Apostle is writing a letter to a church that has been under siege from false teaching, So heresy, false doctrine is being taught in particular that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that Jesus is in that sense, not the Christ, right? Because the Christ needed to come in the flesh in order to redeem men. There is also false teaching that was a kind of philosophical blending with the Bible where there are two planes in the universe. There is a physical plane and a spiritual plane, and the only thing that matters ultimately is spiritual things. And so sin committed in the body is of no consequence. So remember this. Lawlessness is abounding and a denial that Jesus came in the flesh is prevalent. And then finally, this church that John is writing to has seen a number of people from it leave. They have left. They have denied Christ, left the church, left the faith. And so John is writing into that context. And he is writing to essentially encourage these brothers and sisters to three things. This is like a high level summary. What's John writing to encourage his readers to? Number one, keep trusting Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Keep believing the message that you've heard about Jesus from the beginning. That's the main thing. Secondly, though, keep pressing on in righteousness. Keep pressing on in obedience to the commands of God. And then thirdly, keep pressing on in loving each other. Trust Christ, obey the Lord, love each other. Those are the primary exhortations of this letter. It's a wonderful letter. It's very pastoral. You are gods, right? Trust Christ, keep obeying, keep loving. That's the word from the apostle to his readers. And that's what we're going to be hearing From him today. So now that you've already got your Bibles open, it is time for us to read God's Word together. Beginning in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28, we'll make our way all the way down through chapter 3 and verse 10. This is the word of God. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So I have three points today. I always like to joke that every now and then, on occasion, I do the really good Baptist thing of a three-point sermon. Soak it up. Doesn't happen much. Point number one, we'll just take these one at a time. Point number one from John, three encouragements from John to his readers. Number one, keep trusting Jesus. It's right there in verse 28. Keep trusting Christ. Put your eyes there. And now, little children, again, a term of endearment, dear ones. Abide in him. Abide in Christ. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Trust in Christ. Christ, keep hoping in Christ, keep resting in and dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we might have confidence upon his return. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of history is going to be a spectacle. It's going to be awesome, bodily and visible and glorious. And where Christ, we're told in Scripture, came the first time not to judge people, but to save sinners We do know that Christ in his second coming, the consummation of all things will come in judgment. But for all of those who are in him by faith, there is no reason to fear that day. Little children, dear ones, keep trusting Christ and you can have confidence when the Lord returns. Why? Well, as we considered last week, The reason that we can have confidence before the Lord is because Jesus is the only hope for a sinner. Christ is the reason. How can I hope? How can I have confidence before the holy living God of the universe from whom no one can deliver me, who always does his will, who is perfectly righteous in everything? How could I ever, how could you ever As a sinner, have confidence before him. The answer is quite simply Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. That's it. Talk about exclusivity. That's exclusive. This has exclusivity with respect to Christ has nothing to do with being closed minded or anything like that. It has everything to do with the fact that there is only one person in the history of the world who could accomplish righteousness. So that it might be counted to others. There's only one person who could atone for sin. Who could atone for sin and bear the wrath of an eternal God. The reason why Christ is the only way to be confident before the Lord. Is because he is the only one who could accomplish redemption. Period. His life. He came born under the law we are told. The law that God gave to Moses, God's perfect standard, God's expectations, what pleases him is revealed in the law. Jesus was born under that same law. And unlike every other human being, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. In Adam and Eve, our first parents, we fell. The covenant that God made with them in the Garden of Eden. Fill the earth, subdue it, multiply, cultivate it. You can eat anything I've given you. Don't eat from that tree. That covenant was broken. Sin entered the world. And from that point on, God has been working to redeem his people. But God is a righteous judge. God rewards good and punishes evil. Period. He doesn't reward wickedness. He doesn't condemn goodness. The problem, as you Might be feeling if you're honest with yourself, any sane human being will acknowledge, Okay, well, if God's a righteous judge and he rewards good and punishes evil, that's really bad if nobody's good. Because We're not. And so there had to come one who could accomplish righteousness and fulfill that law so that that perfect obedience could be counted to us by faith so that God in righteousness would save his people. Our sins that we have committed need to be dealt with in God's economy of perfect justice. And so Christ came to pay for those. He took our sins, our sinning, our law-breaking on Himself really and paid for those sins. He atoned for and paid for your guilt. He covered your shame in particular on the cross when He died in our place. Christ's righteousness, his death, counted to us completely by faith and trust in him, not by works, by faith, is the only hope for a sinner. And it's the only way, by abiding in Christ, by trusting and resting in him and his work, that a sinner might have confidence and not shrink back, as John says, when the Lord returns. Praise God for Jesus Christ and for the redemption that he has accomplished in our place. He is our great high priest. And so instead of shrinking back when he returns, we can approach the throne with confidence and boldness because of Christ. Listen to the words of the writer to the Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Keep believing. Keep trusting for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because of Jesus, not you. Our boldness and our confidence in coming to God for anything, even like when we do our pastoral prayer of petition, where we bring our requests to God, we do that in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we pray in his name. Coming to you in Christ. I'm now by your grace. I'm your child and I'm called by your name and I'm depending completely on your grace and your goodness. It's not about me and my merit. I can approach boldly because of Christ. The writer of the Hebrews goes on therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us and since we have a great high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith praise god So this exhortation that John continues to give he continues to give it keep believing the message you've heard about Christ. Keep trusting, keep abiding in him. That message is is important for us in thinking about living the Christian life. So if you've been a part of this church for long or you've been around us for long, I certainly know this is true if you've hung out with, with me or Ron much. And I think this is kind of just true of all of us at this point in our walk in following the Lord Jesus. You're going to hear This encouragement, trust Christ all the time. Trust Christ, look to Jesus. I just want to acknowledge that reality just for a moment. That that is the primary encouragement that we offer when life is hard. Trust Christ. When life is hard, look to Jesus. And it's important that we would understand as a church, according to the word, That trust Christ is anything but some cliche. Look to Jesus. Trust Christ is not some kind of just like Christian speak. It's the Christian life. To trust Christ is the thing, like capital T-H-E, the thing we all need to be reminded of and encouraged to in every circumstance. To trust Christ is the thing we all need to be reminded of and encouraged to, perhaps especially when things are hard. Trust Christ. It is not just some cute or clever thing to say. It's in the book, right? It's what the apostles say. Trust Jesus. He is trustworthy, you know doesn't matter what your circumstances are. He remains the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is utterly faithful. He never fails in anything. He loves his own. He intercedes for his own. He will raise us up on the last day. He has promised that. <clears throat> the reason that we encourage one another to trust Christ is because he really is our righteousness and our atonement and our resurrection and our life, our salvation, our hope, our joy, our peace, our rest. Christ really is all. We sing sometimes, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. It's true. Christ is all. Trust him. No one who trusts him after all will ever be put to shame. We will have confidence on the day of his coming and we will not need to shrink back in fear. So that brings us to our second point of consideration for today. John's first encouragement to his readers is to keep trusting Jesus. His second encouragement to them is that you are children of God. Encouragement number two, you are children of God. We're going to skip verse 29 for a second because I'm going to include that in the third piece. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That could be rendered. See what wonderful love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Father's love is wonderful. The Father's love really is amazing. John Owen, who lived a long time ago, an English Puritan writer, a really good one, once said that the greatest offense that we could ever commit against God the Father is to question his love for us. God's love is extravagant. God's love really is wonderful. This whole business that John writes, I hope this isn't just lost on us because we talk in these terms so often. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Holy smokes. We have been adopted. So we're not natural children of God. Let's get that straight. Naturally, we are of the evil one. Naturally, in the flesh, we are... In alignment, as the the Bible makes clear, there are two kinds of people. There's this great division in the human race. Those who are the seed of the woman from Genesis chapter 3. Those who are gods. And then those who are the seed of the serpent, the devil. It's one or the other. So we naturally are of the evil one. But God has seen to it because of his extravagant and wonderful love that we have been adopted into his family and we are now his children. We call him father. He's not our judge. That's awesome news. I don't know about you, but I find that day to day, certainly when life is difficult, especially when I'm mindful of my own sinning, it can be a real struggle to remember this, that, hey, I've been adopted into God's family. We have been adopted into God's family. We struggle to remember this. We struggle to live in that identity. Why? Because we're so prone in our hearts and in our minds to to kind of figuratively speaking, go back to the orphanage that we used to live in rather than, Trusting in the love of our adopted father. We go back to the orphanage. We don't trust in the love of the father. We have so much doubt. We have so much fear. About all kinds of things. A lot of our doubts and our fears have. A lot to do with us and ourselves and our failures. We have so many questions. We have so much insecurity like there's no way that I could be God's child the truth is brothers and sisters that we are loved in wonderful and magnificent ways by our father our shame is great no doubt about that our guilt is great indeed and God has covered our guilt And God has covered our shame and he's given us his name. And to that, his people say, thank you, Father, Abba. So this is a change of identity. This that John's talking about, this is an identity issue. God has loved us in such a way that we might be children of God and so we are. We are now. This this has happened. We are children of God. We are not trying to become children of God. That's critical. I'll say that even again, just for us to think about that. We are children of God in Christ. We are not trying to become children of God. That's key for us. God has covered our shame and given us his name. He loves us with an utterly faithful love. He works in us by his spirit. He will never disown his children. That's John's comfort. That's John's encouragement to his readers. He goes on, though, in the last portion of verse one. We are children of God, he said. God's loved us in an amazing way. And then he acknowledges the fact that things are going to be hard in the world often. Look at what he says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It did not know Jesus. We can think about the first chapter of John's gospel. He came to his own. The word Christ came to his own, but his own did not know him. Right. So the reason the world doesn't know us is because the world didn't know Jesus. People in the world won't understand this. You realize that this that we're doing right. I mean, it's good to own this. Like, this in the eyes of the world is absolute lunacy, what we're doing right now. It's like, this has got to be, at best, it's some kind of cult, right? At worst, like, you people are fools amongst the most foolish. You have absolutely lost your minds to be doing what you're doing right now. John is saying, look, don't, don't sweat that. Don't worry about that. People won't understand. It's always going to seem strange. It's going to be unknown because the world didn't know Christ. They won't understand you. The world may say hurtful things about you. People from the world might even like hang out in your midst for a while and then they'll leave you. Like what happened in this context. People are out. They might even, people in the world, might even seek to harm you in some way. But don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. Nothing, it's like Peter says in 1 Peter 4, when trials come upon you, do not think that something strange is happening. So this is what John is doing for his readers. He's strengthening them in the Lord Jesus Christ and preparing them for what they're going to face and tells them to not be concerned about that. Nothing strange is happening. The world did not know Jesus either. Take heart. Trust him. The comfort and the hope continues in verse 2. Let's put our eyes there now. Again, John, it's no question that he loves these people. He keeps calling them either little children, dear children, or in this case, beloved. We are God's children now, just to be crystal clear. Like right now, we are God's children. And... What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know. Tell me what I know. right? Tell me what I feel. Tell me what I know. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we are already God's children now, which is awesome. It's the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ and to be a child of God now. And one day, It's going to get even better. The hope that we have is not found in this life. Ultimately, as good as it is to be a child of God now. One day we will be like Jesus. That is, we will be raised imperishable, incorruptible with a body like he has now. We will be like him. We will be perfect. We will be righteous. And we will see him as he is right now. We see as though through a mirror dimly. Right. But then one day we will see face to face right now. We see with the eyes of faith one day that will turn to physical sight and we will behold the Lord Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. What a day that will be. We will, as Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer, John 17, 24, you can write the reference down if you want to. I think it's one of the greatest verses in the Bible where Christ prays to the Father on behalf of the apostles and everyone who would believe through their word, that's you and me. He prays, Father, I I pray that they would be with me where I am to behold the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world because you loved me. We will be with Jesus and we will behold the glory of Christ forever. And that's going to be the greatest show that the world has ever seen. Get your popcorn ready. It's going to be legitimate, better than anything we've ever beheld, the glory of the Son of God. We too, though, like we too will be glorious. Like this news just gets better and better and better, right? We're told that we will shine by the Lord Jesus himself. He says that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father, raised imperishable, incorruptible, to live with God forever unspeakable joy and glory await us. So do you see, brothers and sisters, what John is doing in this letter? What he's doing even in this passage. He's writing to believers who have been surrounded by, who have been hurt by, who have been shaken by false teaching and people leaving them, people living kind of just whack lives, lawless lives, And he's telling these dear saints to keep trusting Christ. You are God's, you are in Jesus, you are God's children. This is your identity. Keep pressing on. The hope that you have in Christ is beyond your comprehension. The glory that awaits you is better than you can imagine. Beloved hope in God. That's the message. Which brings us now to our third point for today. John's first encouragement, keep trusting Jesus. Second encouragement is that you are, we are children of God. Third encouragement, keep pursuing righteousness. Third encouragement, keep pursuing righteousness. Before we go any further, you're going to see the the language of practicing righteousness or doing righteousness. We're going to Consider that in more detail in a minute. But I'm just going to briefly define it before we even look at any of the verses, and then we'll get underneath all of this later. Practicing righteousness, quite simply, if we wanted to be just very straightforward, would be obedience to the commands of God. God defines what righteousness is. We, we don't. So obedience to God's commands is practicing righteousness. It is, in another way to frame it, living in alignment with the word of God is practicing righteousness. So I'm going to leave it there for now. There's a lot underneath that and we'll get there in just a minute. Put your eyes now on verse 29 of of chapter two. Remember again, the context of the letter, right? Lawlessness, sin in the body doesn't matter. Here we go. If you know that he, that meaning Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been born of the spirit through Christ. Anyone who practices righteousness, anyone who is Pursuing righteousness, striving after obedience. We know that those people have been born of God. Let's skip down to verse 3 of chapter 3. And everyone, the hope that John has given them, hope in the Lord. And everyone who hopes in that way, in God, hoping in Christ, purifies himself. Because Jesus is pure. We strive to be like him. Moving on through verse four, I'm just gonna kind of survey some of these things and we're gonna unpack the big principles together. We see in verse four that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared, verse five, to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one, verse six, who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. We're gonna think about this. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or known him. So, very quickly, we need to think about what making a practice of sinning means and what keeping on sinning means. This is not unique to me at all. This is just Christian history, Orthodox teaching. Here we go. Nothing new. It's very clear from the context of this letter that John is not talking about some kind of sinless perfection. That's clear. Why? Think back to how the letter began. If we say we have no sin, we are deceived, right? We are deluded. And the truth of God is not in us. And then he also says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is all in verse 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 1. If we say, verse 10 of chapter 1, that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and His word is not in us. Verse 10, One of chapter two, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with Christ Jesus or with the father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. He is the satisfaction for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. As we've been thinking about, the apostles always start with the work of Christ in the place of the Christian. When we think about anything, certainly when we think about even our obedience, they begin with what Christ has done and then we live from that. That's what John has done. So I'm going to offer a definition. Again, this is not unique to me. This is nothing new. To make a practice of sinning, that's pretty clear even in the way that it's worded, or to keep on sinning would be to live a life characterized by deliberate and unrepentant sin. Let me say that again. Note takers in the room, I'm going to try to say it so you can get it down. People can listen to the audio to make a practice of sinning or to keep on sinning using John's language would be to live a life characterized by deliberate and unrepentant sin. Now, I chose my words carefully there. The issue, as we've thought about, is of what characterizes a person's life. What's the trajectory? As we thought about even just a few weeks ago, the issue here is one of trajectory and not perfection. The issue is of high level what describes and characterizes your life. The reason I say it like this is every, every single believer in this room, maybe today, but certainly in very recent memory, has deliberately sinned. Like you knew what you were doing and you did it. You knew what you were thinking was wrong and you went ahead and just kind of wallowed in it. Whatever. We do deliberately sin. And there are times when Christians are unrepentant about sin and the Lord brings them back. I'm sinning. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing this. And then the Lord breaks somebody's heart. And what happens? Repentance happens. I'm, I'm wrong. God's way is best. His way leads to eternal life. I'm casting myself on the mercy of God anew in Jesus. Repentance happens. So it's an issue of trajectory and not perfection. It is an issue of what characterizes a person's life. To make a practice of sinning, to keep on sinning, is to live a life that is characterized by deliberate and ongoing unrepentant sin. Okay, verse seven, let's put our eyes there. Again, little children, endearment, let no one deceive you. Again, remember the context of the letter. People are living lawless lives because they're telling you that if you were enlightened like them, you would know that sins in the body don't matter, that the only thing that matters is this spiritual plane, right? And that how you live in your flesh is inconsequential. They're lawless people. Don't let anyone deceive you, beloved. Verse seven, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. This is another way of saying that everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. And even in thinking about practicing righteousness, again, it's a question of trajectory. It's a question of what characterizes your life. It's a pursuit of obedience. It's a striving after obedience in order that we might live in a way that pleases God. That's to practice righteousness, and it is to obey. Like I think a lot of times in our own lives, we tend to fall off one side of the horse or the other, even like in the same minute. We either think too well of ourselves or we despair. We're never in a good place. We seriously like we either think, oh, I'm doing great and we're blind to our sin or we are too aware and we are convicted, not just convicted. We feel guilt and it's like, no way could could I be a Christian? We're rarely in a reasonable place when it comes to how we assess ourselves. So we often, when we hear something like practicing righteousness, we can be very unaware of the ways that we are obeying. I'm serious. As a pastor, as your pastor, I want you to know, we as a body of believers ought to make it a practice of encouraging each other when we see obedience. Obedience. Like, praise God that his spirit is working in you and me, that we're different than we used to be. The transformed life is real. That's what John is talking about. Practicing righteousness. Your life is changed. It's not perfect. You're not where you should be. But your obedience is real. Let no one deceive you, little children. Whoever is striving after righteousness and whoever is obeying God's commands is righteous as Christ is righteous. You should be thinking right now, uh, how's that possible that our imperfect obedience, in our imperfect obedience, I should say, that we are righteous as Jesus is. How? Again, I hope that you're going here where it's like clearly in thinking about what Christ has done, his imputed, his credited righteousness is in view here. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. The evidence of the new birth is a pursuit of obedience. And because you've been born again by the Spirit, you have been declared righteous in Jesus Christ. You are righteous as He is, as is evidenced by your pursuit of obedience. We never obey our way to righteousness in God's eyes, but our striving to obey is evidence that we have been counted righteous in Jesus. Put your eyes on verse eight. This again is just kind of hammering home that distinction that I already made, so I'm not gonna labor this. John says, whoever again makes a practice of sinning, right, goes on deliberately unrepentant sinning. That person is of the evil one. He's of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And Jesus, the son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the enemy. Skip down to verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever's not striving after obedience and righteousness is not of God. Again, characterization of your life. You don't care about the things of God. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We are either in Christ or we are in Adam. God is our father or the devil is our father. That's how Jesus speaks in John chapter 8. The distinction becomes clear between those two groups of people because the children of God desire to keep God's commands. They strive to keep God's commands. They really do obey imperfectly, but really the children of God love one another. We're going to talk about that next week. These things are what characterize the life of the Christian, the trajectory of the believer's life. And so now what I want to do, this is still all under the heading point three, pursue righteousness. Now we're going to do that unpacking thing that I said we would do. Like let's get underneath the practicing of righteousness and what that even looks like or what that would mean. So I think this is massively important for our understanding. Practicing righteousness, as John describes it and defines it here using that phrase. Practicing righteousness is about so much more than morality. It's about a lot more than morality. It's never less than that, but it is so much more than that. Practicing righteousness goes much, much deeper than some kind of external conformity to a written code. So this is all, this is kind of like a subsection, I guess you could say. I'm just trying to be, I don't even know, clear. Um, Subsection of point three. I'm going to give you three things, just kind of three things about practicing righteousness. Number one, practicing righteousness is a heart level issue. Practicing righteousness is a heart level issue. So God's law, As we understand, we could take the Ten Commandments as a summary, take the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second that's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. God's law, however high level or nitty gritty you want to get. God's law rightly applied is applied at the level of the heart. Exhibit A is the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. He says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he starts to talk to them, basically about why they needed someone to fulfill it for them. Because the general thinking of the day is we're doing all right. We're not committing adultery. We're not murdering people. We're doing pretty good. So Christ will bring those commandments up. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm saying to you that if you've looked at another person who isn't your spouse, lustfully, you've committed adultery in terms of the heart level application of the law of God. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you that if you've had a hatred and anger in your heart towards your brother, you have essentially killed him. You have broken that commandment. So Jesus is exposing us and he is damning us because we cannot keep the law at the heart level. It might be easy enough to not kill someone, but it is Not easy, and everyone is guilty of anger towards other people. Another great example of this is with the rich young ruler. I won't take a ton of time on this right now because I love you and don't want to do that. But that is a great case study in how Jesus uses the law and exposes that young man's heart. Because he tells, he comes to Jesus and asks, how do I have eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, well, I've done that. Christ doesn't argue. He just turns the temperature up. He says, fine, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor, come follow me, and the man leaves rejected. Why? It's a heart issue. When Christ dumps the full weight of the law on that young man's conscience, he's ruined. He's absolutely ruined to the point that the disciples say, Jesus, who in the world can be saved? And he says, well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's possible. The law, rightly applied, is applied at the heart level. God has always been concerned about the heart He's always been concerned about the hearts of his people. Think about these words from the prophet Isaiah that Jesus cites in Mark 7 and Matthew 15. This people draws near me with their mouths and honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Whoa, it's a written code, man. Jesus goes on in Mark 7, verse 8, to talk about how This is not about a written code. This is not about the tradition of men. This is about what God has said. This is about your hearts. This is in the same context where he goes on to talk about how it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. Right? This is a heart issue. I think the point is made. Practicing righteousness is a heart issue. It is not about just external conformity or morality. Second thing about practicing righteousness Practicing righteousness is done in and from faith. Practicing righteousness is done in and from faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. This is going to be very brief. You're welcome. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Practicing righteousness requires faith. It requires faith that God is real, that his word is truth that Christ is all, that his way is best, that his promises are sure, that his discipline is good. It requires faith. Third thing that we can say about practicing righteousness. Number one, just by way of reminder, practicing righteousness is a heart level issue. Number two, practicing righteousness is done in and from faith. Number three, practicing righteousness is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Practicing righteousness is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put it this way to you. Verse 9 is my inspiration. Don't look there yet. We're going to look at it together in a second. Practicing righteousness with respect to the Holy Spirit. Practicing righteousness is impossible apart from him. And it is certain because of him. Practicing righteousness is impossible apart from him. It is certain because of him. Look at verse nine. No one born of God. That's the new birth, clearly. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Goes on deliberately, unrepentantly sinning. Why? For God's seed, the Holy Spirit, abides in that person. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. No one who has been born of God makes a practice of deliberate, unrepentant sin in an ongoing way because the Holy Spirit lives in him or her. The Spirit, let me just put it this way. The Holy Spirit will not allow the believer to remain in unrepentant sin. Period. This is a supernatural thing. This is not about human willpower. Ultimately. Our wills are involved. They're not decisive. The Holy Spirit will not allow God's people who have been born again to remain in unrepentant, deliberate sin. All right, here's some Bible for you. The fact that practicing righteousness is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Here's some Bible. I've only given I'm only giving you three of the citations that I had in my notes because I had like 30. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. John 6, 63. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Both the righteousness of Christ counted to us is in view there. And even our new way of living is in view there. We walk by the spirit, not the flesh. And just to be crystal clear that obedience, practicing righteousness is impossible apart from the spirit of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8.8. It's only by the spirit. Romans 8 is chock full of glorious promises primarily about what the Holy Spirit is doing and will do. All right, now some more Bible for us. We said, all right, it's impossible to practice righteousness apart from the Holy Spirit. But with him, it's certain. Practicing righteousness is certain with the Holy Spirit. Here we go. Here's some Bible. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He predestined us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Here we go. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Our practicing righteousness and our sanctification is certain. And here we go again. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. God is in this. He will sanctify us by his spirit. And then here's one more passage with a few more verses. I would just kind of say that these, we've thought about the impossible part, apart from the spirit, the certainty with him. This this passage is one of comfort for those who are in Christ and are striving to practice righteousness. This again is from the writer to the Hebrews. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So, What's the takeaway? As a Christian, trusting Christ, you have been declared righteous. Own that. Jesus has already, in terms of accomplishment, he has seen to it that you will be perfect. It's guaranteed. And at the same time, you are being perfected. You are being sanctified. Trust Christ and trust the Holy Spirit in you. Trust the Holy Spirit in us, in one another. So this is an observation. We are almost done. We have a tendency in the church, and I don't necessarily mean CBC, though I'm sure we fall prey to this too. I think this is pretty prevalent in our current context. We have a tendency to functionally deny the reality of the new birth in how we interact with one another. We have a way, we are prone to functionally deny, practically deny the reality of the new birth in how we interact with one another. I'm gonna explain what I mean. This can happen with pastors where, and I'm just gonna say this to you. If I ever start preaching to you in such a way that it seems like I don't think you're Christians, fire me. If I start preaching to you in such a way that it seems like I don't think you are believers, fire me. This can happen where every sermon sounds angry. It's almost like we assume that the church were... So let let me just lay this out. We are a Baptistic congregational church. We believe in what's called regenerate church membership, meaning that we trust that every person who is a member of this church is born again. Why in the world then would we preach to us, to one another as though we're not Christians? There are times for warning. There are times for rebuke. There are times for correction, no doubt. But if the general tone and tenor is one of anger and threat, I think we have missed the point. And this is prevalent in our context. I know for us, you can pray for your pastors that we would have a posture towards the membership and the saints at CBC where we will seek to trust the Holy Spirit in you and in us. So this, this matters. When people find themselves in sin, we say true things. We call people to turn from sin. And at the same time, we don't need to jump off the rooftops Right. At the same time, we can show compassion because why? I think you're born again. I'm going to trust that the spirit of God is going to do his work here. The spirit of God is going to work in you and you won't remain in this posture. That affects how a pastor pastors. But it affects more than just pastors. It affects the entire culture of a church. Right. Where we kind of if we deal with one another all the time, sort of suspecting that everybody's just kind of nominal. Nobody's real. Real. Everybody's insincere. That's going to be the last place on earth I'd want to be, right? I don't know about you. Talk about a dangerous place. Talk about a place that you would be terrified to to talk honestly about anything. It's that kind of a, a place. And so we ought to strive by the Spirit to have a posture where we trust the Holy Spirit of God in each other. We give our brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt, but then long-term, as we're dealing with people who are trapped in sin, we restore them, Galatians 6.1, in a spirit of gentleness because we trust the Spirit of God to do His work rather than constantly kind of threatening one another. We only should threaten when that is warranted and justified. So the conclusion in this, friends, in all of it, you've heard the song, Trust and Obey. Some of you maybe, the old hymn. That's pretty good. I could even use that. I'm gonna use a slightly different, different term. Rest and obey. So what's, what's your takeaway for today? Rest and obey. Rest in Christ, obey God's commands. The greatest news in the world is the work of Jesus on our behalf, that we are in Christ, that that's our identity and that's certain, that we are children of God, that's who we are and that's certain and God is not going to disown us. And then as these things sink in, we begin to realize how we can now obey and pursue righteousness from a place of rest and peace. We are not in pursuit of peace with God. We have it in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can obey from there. The wrong assumption so often is that people need to be threatened in order to be motivated. Not true in the church. People don't always have to be threatened. The primary motivator is different. In our experience, as we rest and obey, obedience can become the joyful and hope-filled thing that it is. Because of sin, like real talk, because of sin, the pursuit of righteousness will be a battle. So rest does not mean don't, don't fight. Rest has everything to do with your identity and the peace that's in your heart. It will be a battle because of sin. But in the battle, there is hope. In the battle, there is joy. In the battle, there is peace. And in the battle, there is real, meaningful rest. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Keep trusting Christ keep pursuing righteousness. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Thanks be to God for those things. Let's pray. Our father, we do come to you now very simply. We pray for all of us that we would continue to trust Jesus. We pray that you would give us the grace to do that. We pray that we would continue to strive after by your spirit obedience to your commands And as we're going to consider more in depth next week, we pray that by your spirit, we would really genuinely love one another. Make these things a reality at our church, we pray. Continue to change us and make us more like Christ and give us rest for our souls and our consciences as we know that we are your children and that we are in the Lord Jesus. Reassure us of all of these things now as we come to the table, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.